Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I am Diana Clark, and I'm here today with Danielle Aristian York, and she is a speaker, consultant, a trainer, and she works with families based on their values, their identities to develop a future plan that is both strategic and operational. Did I get that right? I think so. Sounds pretty good to me. I'd, I'd go for it, Diana. All right. She's also the executive director of 2164, a nonprofit practice founded to serve philanthropic and enterprising families. She and her partners develop and train on catalytic tools for transforming how individuals and families articulate their values and use them as benchmarks for decision making, both for now, in the present, and in the future. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks for having me. So, we love to start with a little bit about what is 2164, why did you start it, and who do you hope to serve? Great big three questions right at the top. Uh, terrific. Um, you know, 2164 is a small nonprofit consulting organization, and we've been around about 20 years. I didn't found it, to be clear. My my colleague and partner in crime, Sharna Goldsecker, did. And um, it was funded initially by Charles and Andy Bromfman, um, philanthropists who come from an enterprising family, the Seagram's fortune um, out of Montreal. Um, Charles and Andy were really interested in figuring out how to work across the generations in their giving and were having trouble engaging the next generation. After after some attempts unsuccessfully, they ended up hiring Sharna. And 2164 became an entity after some work really with trying to understand who the next generation in families of wealth are, how they think and what's important to them, and how folks at different ages and stages could work more with them as peers. So, of course, within the context of a family, but also in the context of a community. And I think it's very much like we're seeing today and even in our own country here in the U.S. How do we, with five adult generations over the age of 21 today, how do we build connections that allow us to move forward and advance, uh, advance change? So that's really where 2164 started. Uh, you know, it was the idea of a very, I think, um, creative philanthropist. And, you know, 20 years later, we are still working on um, multi-generational work, um, both in families and in communities. And our work is really about trying to help people understand uh, what each generation brings to the table. Again, to create that level of peerage that allows people to come together know themselves and know who they are in a collective identity that allows them to make decisions more effectively. You know, I think one of the things that we say that reminds me very much, Diana, of the work that 
you do is that we help people have conversations that are complicated and usually the ones that they've been avoiding. The topics of these conversations include giving, identity, values, money, raising great humans, and you know how to change the world. So I'm super lucky to have made a career out of the subject that interests me the most, which is people and all of their wondrous complexity. That is a great answer. Tell me, what do the numbers represent? Uh, um, I don't know if you've had the opportunity of naming something, but it's, <laughs> you know, I think there's, Awful. I think there's lots Awful. of like, bi- lots of biblical stories around like the, the creative act of naming something. And so the story of 2164's name was probably like a lot of names, which is there's a bunch of people sitting around the table in a meeting and saying, well, what are we going to call this thing? And Jeff Solomon, who ran the Andrew and Charles Bromfin Philanthropies at the time, started singing that Beatles song when I'm 64. Uh-huh. Okay. Are you going to sing it for us, Diana? No, I almost did, but th- <laughs> I, I bit my tongue. He started singing that sentiment around when I'm 64, who comes next and, and who will I be? And I think that that sentiment really informed how we think about this work, that it's not succession, but it's really about how do we work together. So we placed 21, you know, the age when most young people begin to operate with more autonomy outside of the control of their parents, the age of majority in many states. Um, next, we placed it next to 64 to really show the opportunity um, of the alignment uh, and and what it can do. We think it, that those two generations and all five of the generations are more powerful together than they are sort of as they lay in wait for their turn. Absolutely. I remember having a conversation with my father who explained that my son, who is 20, you know, close to that generation. And my father, who is in his late 80s, said he just doesn't seem to want to listen to my values. And I said, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Have you asked him about his? Right. And that must be some of the work that you are doing, right? It is. I think that, that what your story really illuminates is a classic paradigm. I think we see that it doesn't matter what generation you're from, right? Um, Usually everybody thinks that the rising generation of young people are off their rockers and they don't understand. And I think that that is a a sentiment that it has more to do with being human um, and seeing the world from a different perspective, being born into a different place and time than it does with, you know, being a millennial. Um, You know, the baby boomers were also sought as radical, you know, long haired, anti-war, all the things. Each generation has its, um, has, uh, I think previous generations understand that the next generation will lead a changed, um, a changed world. And, and that's the purpose, I think, of our work as humans is to grow and evolve and adapt to a changing world. However, uh, we've never had five adult generations over the age of 21 in our workplaces or in our families. And so the decision-making tables are more crowded. Uh, there's many more opinions to navigate. And I think we have five adult generations today that also have been conditioned so that they believe and understand that, that, their, that their opinion and contribution matters. So they're not waiting to be asked, they're offering it at the top. Um, with so many viewpoints, uh, families, I think, uh, don't have a model that allows them to understand how do we do this all together? Um, and so they're, they're innovating on their own, and that's a big part of the work that we do. 
So innovating the conversation, because how do you do that when you don't have a frame of reference that is, as you say, five generations apart, potentially? Right. I, I think that it, and there's and it's unprecedented. So I think, you know, I just saw something, I think it was earlier this week, maybe it was last week, that the Department of Labor, um, the uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is reporting that 38.5 million millennials will um, compose the workforce by 2029. Like the our country is changing as it always has. I, I mean, humankind is always changing, but I think the sheer volume of the millennial generation compared to aging boomers and our aging traditionalists, like the... Um, the, spect the power, uh, I think, it, we're noticing the redistribution of power as we're thinking about a changing generational landscape at the same time, not just for families, but I think in, in all of our cultures. It's very exciting to an aging boomer to see what's going to happen with the millennials, what they're going to bring. Well, I mean, I think they are already huge contributors if, if we think about our culture in terms of um, you know, what are, if we think about the economy itself, if we think about art, if we think about politics, we know the millennials will leave a tremendous impression and they already have. have. Um, they weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't raised by their parents, Gen Xers like me and maybe boomers like you to wait until they retired or wait until a certain age or time to begin the work. They were raised to do the work and so they're ready to make change now. And I think in many ways that paradigm is different than par how parents and grandparents were conditioned. And so that mm -hmm. I think is part of the multi-generational challenge for folks is it's almost, it's the process, it's the challenge. It's not always the decisions, um, but the differences in communication style and, um, and probably in aptitudes and preferences. Yeah, I can see that. Tell me, when is it appropriate to start having these conversations with the younger generations? What age do you start talking about wealth and money and giving and philanthropy? You know, I get asked that question often by clients. And I think, well, one thing I oftentimes tell parents who are wondering about this, like, when do we begin, is I want, to, want folks to know you're already talking about it. I should say you're already communicating about it, even if you're not being verbal in your articulation. So children who, are, who grow up in your homes and sometimes even come from our bodies, they are watching all the things that parents do. It's all those actions, how you spend, how you earn, how you give of both your, of both your, um, of your wealth, of your resources, and also of your time, like anything that's precious to you. Your kids are always watching. And although it's harder to see savings and investing because it's private, not, not something usually that's sort of front of house, um, I think what oftentimes parents have an opportunity to do when they ask a question like this is to say, well, what am I actually doing? What are my priorities in terms of how I'm spending time or money? And then what are my values? What is actually important to me? How do I reconcile the two of those so that I can be more intentional about how I might want to be more transparent about the choices I'm making or how I want to be more aligned with my values rather than operating from a place of priorities. So sometimes just to make this clear, sometimes what we find is that parents who, um, let's say they had a 
you know, very successful business, they've sold it, they no longer need to go to work every day, right? They have done the hard work, but now they're in a different stage of life. When kids grow up in a home where they don't see people going to work every day, they learn something about going to work every day and the value of that. And so the question I always ask parents is, you know, what would success look like for your kid in terms of their behaviors and their attitudes around money? And then what do they need to learn in order to do that? I think the bottom line for me, Diana, and what I always say to folks is do not outsource your parenting around mm-hmm. money. There's mm-hmm. lots of people in my field. There's a bazillion books. There's tons of smart people. I know you've had gobs of them on this podcast who can do great work with families, but they, it doesn't replace the role of the parent. And um, you don't have to be an expert in wealth or communication in order to parent well. There is no parent that is was ever expert before they began to parent. It is, it is an, um, a very human behavior and expertise isn't required. All you have to do is know your child and know yourself and begin to have a conversation. And be willing to do, as a friend said, the two functions. One is to love them just because they breathe and two is to make sure they can function without you in whatever form that is, in whatever demographic that looks like. They need to be able to function without us. I think that's well said. And and I think there's the other important thing about this, like I'm thinking about this in my own parenting, in terms of functioning without us, a big part of that is to be able to grow their capacity to tolerate discomfort. Exactly. And you know, sometimes when you're looking at your kids, all you want to do is, you know, create a safe and healthy place for them to become themselves, the risk for us as parents is that we put a, a bubble between them and the world that's so big. And then we expect one day that they could launch out of our homes in fully insulated bubble wrap. And that as they land at university or at a job place, that they will have, um, they'll have the thick enough skin um, to be able to manage the feedback that they're going to get from the world. It's like uh, a client of mine who said she grew up thinking that she was a wonderful singer because her mother and father always told her she was a wonderful singer and that took her to all the lessons and she went to all the camps. And then she auditioned for something and they said, no, you're not very talented. And she heard you're not very talented many, many times. And it was so challenging to her because her parents had just adored her, but had not given her the opportunity to really test her skills and abilities out in the world. So I think what we tell parents is, you have to allow your children to experience the world if you want them to live in it without you. And that means being able to cope with disappointment. That needs means being able to cope with pain. That means, you know, being able to dig in with some grit and overcome hurdles. And we're our generation, at least mine, is not very good at observing our children struggling with anything and not stepping in to ameliorate it. I mean, I think you're you're pointing to uh, uh, we have an opportunity. I think now many of us to parent in a way that really protects our kids and keeps them really safe. Right? They don't have to go to work or oftentimes contribute to the financial budget. But um, I think, but by not teaching kids what it is that they can do, not just that in terms of responding to the hard things, but also like getting paid what you're worth, knowing what's important to you, sort of making choices that are aligned with what's important to you, to be distinct and apart from your parents from an interest and, um, 
you know, uh, an interest in lifestyle perspective and that, and that parents, you know, as, as a friend, Ellen Perry talks about, you know, parents pitch a tent that's big enough to fit everybody, uh, inside. I think that's really the work of parenting. I think it gets, gets amplified when you have enough resources to protect people from doing that. But, um, the work of parenting is a really human problem. It doesn't matter how much you have. Every parent has the same desires. I think um, people with resources, uh, like clients of mine, uh, oftentimes have more opportunity for protecting their kids. But it's, mm-hmm. it's not a problem of wealthy people. It's a problem of human people. Right. And it is a generational thing. I do recall my friends and myself having parents who were basically, you know, they were not very interested in hearing if we had a bad day. They were interested in hearing, you know, do we do our homework? Do we make our bed? And Mm. were we outside until supper? And there was a very different conversation that occurred than that occurs now. That's not a bad thing or a good thing, but it is a thing. And the difference, it is a difference. And the information that kids get now and have access to now also has to impact what parents talk about, right? I think in general, we are living with much more information than was ever available to previous generations. And the, and the predicament of parenting today, it, again, it's an, it's an evergreen uh, predicament for parents, is that you're parenting in a paradigm that you didn't grow up in. So you're parenting kids who have access to all kinds of information. Um, we are in a highly communicative and connected culture and society. Not only do they have access to information, but people have access to them from an information and connection point too. And so I think what, what we really are focused on is helping grow the identity of the human beings who are your children, helping them understand who they are and with some self-reflection, being able to think about how do they move with that awareness to make choices and decisions and then have a space as a parent to say, so how did it go? If we're, if we're saying, you know, relationships really matter to me, well, let's talk about how we're navigating this trouble with a friend. And then, um, so tell us a little bit about how it went and like, how does that help you think about that value that's so important to you? Again, really connecting behavior with values rather than aspirations with values, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I wonder, and you may see this more often than certainly than I do, because I'm dealing with people by and large in behavioral health crises. Um, Mm. Just the functioning young adult or late adolescent who is given the opportunity to explore some giving and how that plays out in some of the families you have worked with. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a common thing, right? So it's, we want our kids, we don't want our kids to be jerks or to be entitled. And so we're going to use this wonderful experience our family has created, which is the opportunity to be generous and to be giving, maybe even being really thoughtful about um, talking about money as a tool rather than something that defines us. So, so I think philanthropy and giving has a lot of benefits for families. Many times I think people start with the act rather the intent than the intention. And so I, I think as we're thinking about inviting somebody to join us in perhaps a more adult activity, 
big part of that invitation is to express the intention. The reason we're going to do this giving together or I want to invite you to join us in some giving together is because why? So parents, how do you come together around that invitation? Sometimes I think that gets missed in the step and so kids are doing some giving but they're not sure if they're being tested for something, if somebody's evaluating them for this, if they can just do whatever they want. You know, I'll, I'll never forget I got a call from a, from a client who's a 80-year-old patriarch of a like four-generation family and who called expressing real concern about inviting his grandchildren to the family philanthropy table. And he said, you know, I grew up this way um, learning about giving, but we gave from like a sadaka box. Uh, I raised my kids with more than I grew up with and we gave to our communities. If I invite my grandkids to this philanthropy table while we're over here saving lives, they're gonna wanna save the damn whales. And we're not in the whale saving business, we're saving lives over here. <laughs> and so the risk he felt was that there was a difference um, that he didn't wasn't ready to encounter. And so what I oftentimes say to parents and grandparents who are inviting young people into this experience is, why are you inviting it? There's like two whys. What, the why we're inviting, we express to our kid or our next generation, what we hope for you, and what do we hope for ourselves? Why, what are we hoping to achieve? I think that level of transparency level sets the playing field and lets a next, per, a next generation person decide how they wanna show up. Um, it, it's fair and, and they can decide to politely decline or they can accept the invitation, but they understand the implications of it. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this invitation that lacks intention is oftentimes missing and people get right to the action of giving. Everybody's gonna get $1,000 to give away this holiday season, but we're not sure why. So I think that's the, in our business at 2164 and consulting to families, we really talk about how do you slow down at the front end to figure out what you're doing or what you want to do and why, both for them and for you. And then we move to action. That's when we go really fast. If we're really clear on our goals and our intentions, then it's really easy to go fast on the back end. But we just try to slow it down a little bit. That's great. Have the conversation before the action instead of trying to the... explain sometimes why you did. And maybe we're not sure sometimes. And Diana, I think the conversation, there's like actually three conversations. Again, I think there's like, we have to talk to the kids, right? I think it's like, um, it's like having the talk about sex, right? It's like having the talk about any death. It's about talking about any of the taboo topics. We go right to like, what am I going to say to the kid? But first, I think the conversation is with ourselves. How did this go for me when somebody talked to me about this or not when I became aware of of wealth or giving, um, if I were to change it, what would I have changed about it for me, right? So for self, um, oftentimes then with partner. So what does my partner think about this? What roles should each of us play? How do we wanna think also about our child, whether they be an adult or a teenager or even younger? Um, what do they need? What's appropriate given their age and stage of development and their knowledge base? Um, and then with that, we move forward into the conversation with, with that next generation with the invitation, I think, for participation or engagement. All right, that's great. If 
I have one more question before I will let you off. I feel like I am pummeling you today. What is the best advice you have for families with young adults who are soon to come into an inheritance where, let's say, the tarmac hasn't been laid, the landing field, and they're about to fly? What do you recommend? Don't outsource your parenting or think it's too late. Your kids have been watching you since the day you were, they were born or, or came into your lives. And you know, neurobiologically, they have learned the world through uh, the lens that you've helped create for them. And so they probably know more than you think. And I think the opportunity is really to say, what for yourself, what does success look like? If we were to fast forward, if we could wave a magic wand to say, this is how my kid would experience their wealth or would experience the world with wealth and giving. Um, and, and to share with your kids in a really candid way, I've been avoiding having a conversation with you about this topic because, and tell it straight to them, your kids can, can uh, sense what is untrue uh, better than anybody probably. And so mm -hmm. my advice is it's not too late. Don't give it just to the professionals and they know more than you think they do. So just start the conversation. It won't be as hard. I think as oftentimes parents imagine it can be. Beautiful answer. Thank you, Danielle York. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Regardless of your platform, if there's a rating system on it, please rate us and pass on the information to your friends. We can also be found on www.oconnorprofessionalgroup.com. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.